Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday. Happy sunny October Sunday. Like Michael said, my name is Maddie, and I have the pleasure of being on the teaching team here at Valley. And uh, as you may have been trudging through the book of Matthew with us, or you are here for the first time tonight, we're opening up the book of Matthew. And tonight, we're turning over some tables. Uh, We are going to be looking at the passage of Jesus cleansing the temple, so it only felt appropriate to start with this meme. Um, If you can't read it, it says, if anyone asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind him that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. So... (laughs) Um, while, while the line about uh, chasing people with a whip is in John's account, bummer, we're not looking at John's account tonight, we're looking at Matthew's account. Uh, this is where we're, this is the passage we're entering into tonight. Uh, Jesus has a lot of anger and passion fighting for something that he believes in. We're going to look at what is it that Jesus is fighting for. What is the source of the passion that he's bringing to this really heated interaction uh, of him, between him and some priests uh, at the temple? And then we're going to look at what does it look like for us as we consider what sort of passion that we should be bringing with us as we fight for our own spiritual growth and holiness. So would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for, once again, another opportunity to freely open your word, to have you speak to us, to have these scriptures be illuminated. Father, we are so grateful that you use this avenue to transform our hearts, transform our lives, and that we get to do this collectively with other believers. So I ask that right now in this moment, walls would be brought down, that the spirit can be felt really tangibly in this place, that you can reveal what you want to speak to us through this passage tonight, and that we would come out changed on the other side. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, if you have not been with us, we have been going through the book of Matthew since the beginning of Valley, and it has been so wonderful to be able to really narrow in on certain passages as we're working through this book, as we get to really take a look at perhaps some things that we hadn't considered before in this book of Matthew. So before we did a little bit of vision series in the last couple of weeks, the last time we were in Matthew, what was happening was Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem in what we know as the Holy Week, the beginning of the Holy Week, and we experienced Palm Sunday as Jesus came in on his triumphal entry. So we have a map that we looked at a couple weeks ago. This is just to help reorient to where we're at in the passage. For several chapters, Jesus has been making his journey to Jerusalem, and the red line, he traveled through Bethany, and he's now coming into the temple. So the triumphal entry of what we were discussing was essentially Jesus's journey down this Mount of Olives, down into the valley, and back up to the temple. But uh, there's much that still has to happen before Jesus is crucified. We have a lot of teachings that he's still going to give, but really, ultimately, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus's life. 
We have Jesus traveling towards his throne, but this is not a place of exaltation, but actually a place of devastation. Instead of receiving a crown of jewels, he will be going to receive his crown of thorns. And instead of going to his throne, he's gonna be hung on a cross. So he is going to the temple, to his home, where the dwelling place of God is, and he discovers what has become of it. So this brings us to our passage tonight in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> and we're going to read the whole thing together. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared your praise for yourself? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. All right, that's our passage for tonight. <clears throat> you may have felt it and noticed it, but we kind of have two halves to our story. We have Jesus cleansing the temple, and then we have Jesus healing the children, calling Jesus the son of David, and the priest growing angry. So we're going to take it two halves at a time. The first one, again, just starting in verse 12, I'm going to read it one more time. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, as you may remember, as we talked about, there are a lot of people traveling to Jerusalem at this time because they're coming for the Feast of Passover. This is a celebration of how God delivered the Israelites in Egypt. By, they placed the blood of a sacrificial lamb over their doorposts and the Spirit of God passed over them and they were saved. So this annual Passover feast is this celebration. So what this means is everyone's traveling to the capital city to celebrate this feast. So what we're seeing in the temple is money changers and people selling animals. Now, these actually are not really sinful, necessarily sinful practices because, one, if all of these people are traveling from outside of Jerusalem to Jerusalem, they're going to need to transfer their money somehow. They're going to need it to be in the local currency. So that's not, money changers inherently is not actually that bad of a practice. And then the people are going to need an animal sacrifice to sacrifice in the temple. They're not really, if they're traveling for 100 miles, they're not bringing their sacrificial lamb with them. That's unnecessary carriage bringing with them. So they do need to purchase their animal. And if you um, remember in Leviticus, like you were probably reading it last night and are just like super fresh and remember everything going on in Leviticus, um, we learned that if you cannot afford a lamb, a pigeon or a turtle dove is sufficient as a sacrifice. So the importance of this is that the fact that these people were selling doves is pointing to the fact that the people who they were selling to were poor people 
because they weren't there to buy their lambs. They couldn't afford their lambs. They were there to buy doves. So the problem with all of this happening in the temple, one, they were stealing money from the poor, and they were tricking, they were stealing money. They were tricking people, and oftentimes these transactions were, oh, you probably don't really know how much money the, it costs to transfer your currency. I'm just gonna pocket a little bit extra. So there's just these wicked practices happening. And then ultimately, they should not have been happening within the temple walls. They should have been happening further out in the city. So when Jesus says to this, he says in verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now here Jesus is quoting two prophets. Anytime we see it is written, we want to know what is he quoting because especially the chief priests, when they hear Jesus quote this to them, he is being strategic. He's not just saying anything whatever. He is pulling from two specific stories in Israel's history, which just give a lot of rich history so that when these words come, they're even more piercing because they are automatically remembering and uploading everything that was going on when these two passages are quoted. So to be good stewards of the scripture and understanding what Jesus was meaning, we're going to look at these passages. <clears throat> so the first half of Jesus's quote my house shall be called a house of prayer, is a quote from Isaiah 56. We're not gonna read the whole passage, but I'm just gonna summarize what's going on in the chapter so you can know where this one quote is coming out of. So Isaiah is describing what really this chapter is just like flowing with blessing for people who are being obedient. He says things like, blessed is the man who preserves justice who does righteousness. Blessed is the man who keeps Sabbath sacred, refrains from doing evil, and hold fast to the covenant. I'm summarizing all of this and compiling it here. These are not direct quotes. But then he, he shifts and he says, for these people who are doing these things, I'm gonna give them a house. And not only will these people be my sons and daughters, but they are going to have a new and an everlasting name. And then in verse seven, this is where Jesus is quoting. He says, these, these people, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, we've talked about holy mountains before. We've talked about high places. These are oftentimes places where God is interacting with man, where God's space and man's space is one. We see this in the temple. We've seen this in um, Jesus being transfigured up on a mountain. And we see the glory of Jesus before the disciples. And we've seen this in Moses being on a mountaintop, receiving from the Lord instruction for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So these holy mountains, you know, you see that, and that's just a little trigger, like, hmm, this seems like a special, a special space. So we have that God's going to put a house on this holy mountain, and he's going to make us joyful in this house, okay? And God, God is going to gather dispersed nations, Israel and other nations, Jew, Gentile, everyone's coming together. This is a house of prayer. Later on in the chapter even talks about a feast. There's wine, there's celebration. 
So we have this image in Isaiah of this beautiful temple. God's temple, his place, his presence, this is where the spirit of God dwells. His people are gathered together, we're welcomed into this house, we are, into this presence. So then we, when you go back to Matthew, this is what the temple was intended to be, and this is not what Jesus finds. This is a space where we're supposed to dwell with God, refrain from doing evil, hold fast to the covenant, do righteousness, experience joy in his presence, and no. <laughs> this should be a holy house of prayer. But instead, now he's quoting Jeremiah. This is a robber's den. In this passage in Jeremiah, Yahweh is telling Jeremiah, okay, go to the gates of the temple. And as people are coming in, I want you to say these things to them. So now Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is saying to you, change your ways. If you actually do what you say, if you practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien and the orphan and the widow, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers. But instead, are you just gonna steal and murder, commit adultery, offer sacrifices to Baal and live for other gods? Jeremiah is seeing this, he's just mourning over the wickedness that he's seen Israel committing. He says, are you gonna come into my house and say, I've been delivered, I'm good, I'm forgiven. I'm all set, only for you to then to go and sin. And you're gonna do all of these wicked things. If so, then this house has become a den of robbers. Man, what a slap in the face for the priests to hear this. These priests who have so, so with such dedication, tried to honor these scriptures, and now they're realizing they are the very wickedness that Israel came from. This is their space. This is the space that they should be keeping sacred for others to come and worship. But instead, this is a place of stealing. This is no better than when Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The goodness is robbed. This is not a house of dwelling and of joy and of life. Conclusion to part one of our passage. Part two of our passage. Picking up in verse 14, Matthew says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed him. Feels a little strange, feels like there's just this break. There was kind of this like accusation to the people and then Jesus is doing these other things. <laughs> so this is one of those times Matthew isn't really necessarily concerned with perhaps the storytelling of it all or the, the chronology of it all. He's more concerned about the facts. This happened, this happened. So we get to kind of piece it together here. Matthew isn't also telling us anything about the conversation that happened or the requests for healing. We've seen that earlier in Matthew where there's these really beautiful conversations of someone so broken before the feet of Jesus and you know, he, he picks them up or he touches them so gently, you know, get up and walk. These moments, that's not what happening, what's happening here. Um, because instead I think Matthew is much more concerned about talking about what happens with the reaction of the Jewish leaders to these acts. And we'll actually see this as we get further into Matthew, that we're really gonna start focusing on 
What are the political and the religious leaders doing? What are their reactions to what Jesus is doing as they begin to plot to kill Jesus? So, Jesus is healing, blind and the lame. How are the priests reacting? Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? The children shouting Hosanna to the son of David, meaning God save us now. This is the very same thing that was proclaimed in the triumphal entry as Jesus came into Jerusalem. Son of David, we know, is used as this proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, the seed of David, who they were waiting for. And really, the children might not have known the significance of these words, but I think it's worth noting that the honor of Jesus' name is still being proclaimed, even from the mouth of a child. And it should also be noted that even in the midst of all of this, Jesus still finds time for the children. So, the priests have had it. They're done for. Leon Morris summarizes what happened here, and he says, it does not surprise us that they were indignant. It was bad enough to have the enthusiasm of the crowds at Jesus' entry to the city, but it was worse to have him invade the temple precincts, their own special territory, and destroy a lucrative source of income, and it was intolerable that there, in the temple courts, he was doing his miracles and now being acclaimed by children who knew no better in messianic terms. Talk about an upside, king, upside down kingdom, the opposite of what should be proper, what they thought should be done. And Jesus' response is a little snarky, I gotta, I gotta say. The second half of verse 16, Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? And then he quotes a psalm. Kind of like a, have you even read the scriptures? Do you even know what you're talking about? He says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. This quote of Psalm 8 really is just saying that even the praise of the children is worthwhile praise. Very clearly, unlike the faux praise of these priests who have distorted the temple. And then in verse 17, he left. He went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Okay. <laughs> he went back out of the city, out of the hub, out of the chaos of everything, to the small town of Bethany. This is where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived, so he very likely stayed with them, his friends. So let's kind of piece together these two halves of the story of what we have here. Jesus is going into the temple. He's driving out the people who are taking advantage of the poor, and they were making profit for themselves. Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he paints these two images, what the house of prayer ought to be and what it has become. And in describing what the house of prayer ought to be, we see this really beautiful image of what dwelling in God's space and in his temple and in his presence could be. And then while others, even the children, are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah and as the Christ, the chief priests continue to deny his identity. So when we look at 
how this works its way out into our own lives, three things. First, Jesus is the Messiah. This is not new information. We continue to come back to this week by week, and that is because the text wants to make it very clear, Jesus is the Messiah. And in this context, in this passage, this, what's important about it is that this remains a fact regardless of who acknowledges it. The innocent children are proclaiming it. The beautiful voice of the innocent children and the priests are denying it, but it remains true. There is nothing that will stop his purposes. He has a goal. He knows what he's going to accomplish and he will accomplish it. He will keep healing. He will keep rescuing. He will keep picking us up when we fall. Jesus is the hope of the whole Hebrew Bible and he's the answer to every question, to every wrestling, to every dissatisfaction and every misplaced love. We can't help but join the children by saying, son of David, save us now. So if Jesus is the Messiah, we also learn that his space is holy. At the very least, it ought to be. And we have Isaiah's image of this holy mountaintop, God's space, his house, and we get to enter into that space, but there's things that are preventing his space from being holy and they need to be cleared out. But I think what that really means for us is that because Jesus is the Messiah and his space is holy, we need to fight against anything that keeps us from entering into that holy space. I'm gonna read that again. Because Jesus is the Messiah and his space is holy, we need to fight against anything that keeps us from entering into that holy space. These acts that were happening in the temple walls kept the people from worshiping and praying in his presence. And Jesus confronted the very thing that was defiling his space and preventing his people from worshiping him. So I think that begs the question, do we need to be confronted about anything? Like looked square in the face and confronted about something. And what areas of your life is causing our communion and worship with God to be hindered? Like maybe our lives just feel cluttered or we're just distracted or our days are so filled with things, we're just so busy. There's just like deliberate sin in our lives. Or anxiety, stress, anger, fear. What do you need to repent from to draw back into that holy space, that house of prayer? Now it's important to note that we do not make ourselves holy. That is not what I'm saying, and you know that's not, that's not the truth. We know that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and we move forward from that reality. But there are things that are threatening this reality, threatening our ability to remain near to the heart of God. For these people, the temple became an idol. It was just this shiny thing that they just thought, well, we could just be good enough for God. Look at this great, this great temple that we have but it just completely distracted them from the true reality of what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to dwell with him. 
So Jesus' anger was towards those who were defiling his space. And it just reflected the passion that he had and how he fought for the preservation of his dwelling with his people. So I ask you, are you fighting for that same preservation? Fighting to flee from whatever threatens or prevents us from walking closely with the Lord. What does that battle look like for you? Or does it even exist? I will never get tired of talking about this. There is a living God who is here tonight and wants to be with you. He so desperately wants to release you from the chains that you are putting on yourself, from the bondages of stress and anxiety and worry, the feeling like you're always just a step behind and you should be somewhere further and that your sin is too big or that you've been too distant. That living God is here right now and wants to be with you. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we get to experience that once again. So why are we allowing other things in our lives to keep us from living in that reality? So tonight we say no more. We're flipping tables. We're cleansing our lives so that we, so that our house can be the house of prayer. So, close your eyes. Take some time right now in prayer to dwell on these things. Just consider what is it the Lord, what is it that the Lord is bringing to your heart? What needs to be cleansed in your heart, in your life? There is a battle going on and the world will do anything to steal your attention, to steal your time, to steal your love, to steal your affection, and pull it away from the one true thing that will bring you life. And the ultimate question is, how can we draw near in his presence tonight?